0: Welcome to A Mona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in LeConnor, Washington. On Saturday, May 3rd, Mona had the opportunity to share a documentary called Donland with our community. Donland is a powerful documentary that reveals the untold narrative of indigenous child removal in the United States. Mona was very fortunate to have Rebecca Black, who is a Quiliute enrolled Quinault, Donland community partner, and a second generation scoop survivor and she introduced the film and moderated some Q&A. On this Mona Moment, we will be hearing Rebecca Black's introduction and post-film reflection and Q&A. To start this podcast, we first want to acknowledge that we are on Indigenous land. The Museum of Northwest Art, where this podcast was recorded, is located on the usual and accustomed land of the Swinomish people. We hope you enjoy this Mona Moment.
1: everyone. Hello. We are so grateful you could be with us today. So my name is Ellie Cross and I'm the Education Director here at Mona. Um, And we are just so grateful that we have the opportunity to share Dawnland with you. Can you all hear me in the back? It's good. Okay. Um, It is a really powerful documentary. It documents the narrative of um, the indigenous child removal in the United States that has been previously untold and untalked about in our community. So we're really grateful that we can share this with you today. Um, We want to start by doing a land acknowledgement. Um, So right now we are standing on Swinomish land. We are gathered on that territory and we are also um, near the neighborhoods laboring tribes of the upper Skagit and the Soxwattle and the Samish Indian nation. So I just wanna take a moment for that to sink in. And we are also very lucky to have Rebecca Black with us today. Um, She, I've heard her speak before and it is very powerful um, and emotional. And she's going to help introduce the film and also to moderate some Q&A afterwards with us. Rebecca Black is a Quileute-enrolled Quinault, a Donland community partner, um, and she's also a second-generation Scoop survivor herself. So please join me in welcoming Rebecca Black.
2: small but really important body of work. Um, As um, was said, I am a community partner um, with the directing team of this uh, film you're about to see, um, which means that um, because of my story and the work that I do around Indian child welfare, um, the directors reached out to me because they're non-native. They have an impact director who is, um, who they did hire, Um, and they work directly with Sandy Whitehawk, who is a member of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, And Sandy and I are friends, and so they reached out to me for um, Tracy Rector of Longhouse Media in Seattle, who does some beautiful film work of her own, um, is is busy with her own work, and so they reached out to me, and they asked me to um, preview the director's cut before they went to final editing, um, and then um, they've also asked me to um, teach this summer uh, the Upstander Academy uh, in Boston, um, which <coughs> teaches educators. It's a week-long immersion um, camp for teachers um, that teaches the real genocidal history of our country. Um, I, I know that all right now, like many people are feeling very, um, clutching their pearls and saying like, this is not who we are as a country. Um, this is exactly who we are as a country. And so this film really talks about that. Um, and as a Scoot survivor, second generation, so my mother was taken um, during the very beginning of this era um, from our people in Kuli'u, uh, from my family, my grandma, um, and my great grandparents. And so imagine, you know, your children, you come home one day and your children literally are gone. Or your grandchildren. You know, I have grandbabies. And, uh, and uh, so imagine, so my, my great grandmas, my grandma, never knew what happened to their children. Uh, before, you know, living in a, um, a small tribal community in the Push, it, it's pretty isolated. You don't have a lot of money, it's 1947, you don't own a vehicle, you can't hire a lawyer, and your children are literally taken out of your home and you don't know where they went. And you have no resources to go and locate them. Um, And so that's kind of where that started. And then my mother was taken immediately to Medina's Children's Home in Tacoma which was an orphanage, and and my mother was old enough to know that that wasn't true, that she wasn't an orphan, that she had family and parents and people who loved her. And uh, and she was adopted very quickly, um, in about four days, to a family in Oregon, where she suffered really grave abuses um, in this non-tribal home. And then she got pregnant really young with me, uh, and was sent away to an unwed um, mother's boarding school, because they still had them in those days for brown women, mostly. Um, And she was further abused there and forced to sign voluntary adoption papers for me. She was never allowed to see me or to hold me, and I was taken from her. And she ran away from that place and never went home. She never went back to the white people who adopted her. She never went back to, she didn't know where she was from, you know, she didn't know her people, she was uneducated, she was young, and and what were her options and her choices? She spent the most of her life um, living on the streets of Seattle and Portland. And until I was able to locate her in 1984 when my daughter was born, um, I believed the adoption narrative that I was told, no one wanted you, nobody in your community could take care of you, that's why we have you and we wanted to give you a better life than whatever that was, right? And I was chosen out of a catalog of little brown kids um, for my white adopted parents. And so so again, this is such important, beautiful work. <coughs> Um, it's hard sometimes for people to watch, so um, I'm just gonna say to some Indigenous folks in the audience, like, just have that trigger warning in your heart. And even if you're not Indigenous, but for us, it really carries a heavy weight. And so I always let people know, please, before that, before this starts, like, pray up, hold that in your heart, and. Um, And we'll we'll visit afterwards. And I'm grateful that there's such a nice turnout and people to see this important work and understand this piece of our history that we don't talk
1: about.
0: At this point during the program, Donland was shown in its entirety. If you are interested in seeing Donland or learning more about this topic, see www.upstanderproject.org/donland. That is www.upstanderproject, spelled U-P-S-T-A-N-D-E-R-P-R-O-J-E-C-T, .org, slash, Dawnland. Upstander also has other films and educational materials. Coming out soon in 2019 is Bounty. The film Bounty will center on the Phipps Proclamation, issued in 1755, by Lieutenant Governor Spencer Phipps, Commander-in-Chief of the Province of Massachusetts Bay. revived in popular memory by Penobscot people as proof of their survival of genocide, the proclamation called on His Majesty's subjects to pursue, captivate, kill, and destroy the Penobscot Tribe of Indians of all ages for a bounty to be paid from the public treasury for their scalps or bodies when brought to Boston. The edict is evidence of colonial settlers' intentions to exterminate Wabanaki people. The film is set in the very council chambers in Boston's old state house where the proclamation was signed. A contemporary reading of the text of the proclamation speaks to the present through the past, a powerful expression of decolonization. If you have not seen Donland, we encourage you to find a screening in your local community. Now we will go back to Rebecca Black
2: breath kinda, <laughs> right? So I think that it's just really important that um, those of you that you know took time out today and it's a Saturday and it's beautiful weather outside and the opening of, you know voting season. <laughs> um, you know to to learn about this little talked about piece of history. Um, And it's important to think about um, what that looks like today. You know, the inception um, of the Indian Child Welfare Act, you know, ICWA, um, was put in place in 1978 because of this. This wasn't just some, you know, it became federal law. um, Because we were bleeding our children out of our communities, at a rate that was unimaginable in our own communities. And like the commission said, the unfortunate thing is that when a Truth and Reconciliation Commission comes together, it's usually because there's civil unrest. Desmond Tutu did that work because their country was imploding, not because something was happening to indigenous people in our country, because we don't talk about that. Because somehow, somewhere along the way, the humanity of our people is not recognized in the same way and in the same vein. And somehow our children are not as important as others. And that's just the truth of it. The institutional racism that that continues today in, in child welfare, in Indian child welfare with the state. So because of my lived experience um, and the things that my family endured. Um, when I moved home to Laconer, I went to school here. I grew up here, and I moved away. And uh, Swinomish, you know, are not my people, but but they are my people because this is where I reconnected with a tribal community as a young girl. And I ran away from my adoptive family, abusive family, um, at 13, and I never went back. And thank God for people in Swinemish that took me in because that's what we do as Indian people. That took me in and I couch surfed and I, and, and, and families took care of this. I don't know where she came from, this little Indian girl, you know, and, and thank God for that. And thank God for Swinemish and your family. Because I was suicidal at 12. That's not normal for a 12-year-old child, and yet, because of the disconnection to my people and my family and my culture, I was. And that happens often to our children in care. So when, when, when the commissioner, right, the the you know the state's attorney general's office, when he was talking about Auschwitz. You know, and saying, like, oh, this isn't genocide. Well, you know, the, the commission used the word cultural genocide. That's just straight-up genocide, yo. Like, we can try to soften it and make it a little prettier, call it cultural genocide. It's genocide. The largest genocide in the history of the world, 63 million indigenous people, 63 million indigenous people were wiped off the planet here in this country. A little known fact and he's talking about the death camps. Hitler wrote, and of course we don't teach this in school, do we? Hitler wrote about his admiration United States government, and the reservation system, and the annihilation of the indigenous people of this country, he modeled his concentration camps after the reservation systems here in the United States. He modeled the death camps after our reservation policy, including the tattooed numbers. As an indigenous woman in this country, I have a number that the government tracks me by. And so we don't teach that. <clears throat> we don't teach it, we don't talk about it, right? But these are the things that we know. And when, when the commission talked about, you know, their privilege and why can't I be there? Why can't I sit in that circle? Why? Because we need to be able to deal it. And there are times when your privilege doesn't deserve a seat at the table. Sometimes those things need to happen for us as indigenous people And so I think that that, that really important aspect of that, right, is that today, so I lost my mother in 2012. And it was like when my mother passed, we have a saying in our communities, man, my mom joined our, my ancestors, and it was over. Like, I could not sit down and shut up. I had to talk about this. I've testified before the Department of Justice. I've testified before the Bureau of Indian Affairs. I have spoken on this issue at the state level. Um, You know, like I said, so this, the Wabanaki Reach is teaching, right? Every summer, they teach educators. For a week, I'll be teaching in Boston to talk about this. And when my mom joined my ancestors, I could not sit down and be quiet. I have to be able to share the story of our families, our communities, and our children. And the thing today, I'm a licensed foster parent. I'm, I went through the process of becoming state licensed because here's what I hear in, in, in child welfare services well it's your fault that we don't comply with IGWA. Yeah, we know it's a federal law but y'all don't have enough foster moms and so it's your fault that we as a state are not in ICWA compliance i heard it all the time i hear it all the time today i hear people blame our communities instead of talking about the disproportionality and the institutional racism that removes our children to begin with. Let's deflect, let's not talk about that. Let's deflect that back and put it back on your people and your communities. It's your fault that you don't have enough foster homes. So I went through the process of becoming state licensed. I don't have to be. As an indigenous woman, I can do my, my third background check and I can do those things, and tribes with their sovereign immunity and, and their sovereignty can choose me as a placement. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted to see what the state would do. So I went through this licensing process with the state. Right here, and I, I did this for Swinomish because I thought, a resource to the people that were a resource to me. And so I went through this process. So I've been licensed for Lord, five years. Five years, I think, this year. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I went through this process. And so I thought, I'm not going to say anything because your license goes live in the system when you become a foster parent. And I thought, so the state knows I'm tribal, that I am an equal compliant placement. I'm going to like chill with this for a minute. I'm gonna see what happens. Six months went by. I never once got a call from the state. So, so then I started reaching out to local tribes. So, in that five years, somebody just take a guess. How many times do you think our new rebranded DCYF? Um pretty pretty the little new name on it rather than welfare or DSHS. How many times do you think the state has called me for an ICO compliant foster placement? Just a wild guess. Zero. Absolutely zero. Not once. The kids that have been in my care and have been placement with me have come because my name is known here in the Northwest. Because we are small communities and we know each other and we're connected and we pull canoe and we participate in culture and and I'm out there and I'm speaking about this stuff and I'm, I'm actively advocating for our children. And tribal, actual tribal social workers, know that and when there's a bed open in my house that network knows that i didn't have a bed open for more than two days and talayla drove and said can we please just come and meet you real like just we just want to talk about it and they drove here and inspected my house and the next day i had two little boys that i'm that I've been raising, that are immersed in their culture, they're a part of our Swinomish community, they poke canoe, they're in the smokehouse all winter, they are immersed in everything that makes us who we are as indigenous people. But they too were in six placements before I got them. Six times they were moved. And all of them were non-tribal foster parents. All of them. And so so when we talk about you know like we still think even this, right, is pretty dated. I mean if you look at his garment like, right, I, even that was a little bit ago, even though it was 2015. So so when we think, man, you know I think I love living in Washington and, and like I said, my, this is where my people are from and you know, um so I love it here. And I we always think, like, Washington is this great liberal, like, we're a great state, right? Very democratic. Right? Yeah, well, there's the, the head of the democratic, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so we think about, we think that often, you know, we take pride in that in Washington. At least I, you know, I think about those things. So um, I've done some work with the National Child Welfare Association um, in Portland. <laughs> and I've done some trainings for them and with them and in conjunction with them. And, um, and, and there's these, these reports are available on the back table. Um, so, so, NICWA studies statewide um, Indian child welfare compliance, right? So, they're a national organization out of Portland. And, and they track this stuff and they pay attention. And so <laughs> their last report, nationwide, okay? I don't know if any of you have heard, but there's a big lawsuit that the Dakotas just lost by the, um, the Dakota Law Project uh, about them literally <coughs> stealing tribal kids from the Dakota people, Lakota people, and, and the state just lost a huge lawsuit. and There's gonna be, you know, that's gonna be a problem. So so this report then was compiled and so they compiled the worst fifteen states in the nation. Fifteen states in the nation that are that have the worst record for compliance with a federal law, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Where do you think Washington fell in that? Just like a wild guess. What? Third. Thirteen. Oh, that would have been nice. <laughs> oh, you're really close, Amanda. We are ranked the fourth worst state in the nation for disproportionality and non-equal compliance. Which means that our local kids at Swimish, that my local kids at Puliute, our people, our children, are still being removed from our communities, and our grandparents, and our aunties, and being placed in white foster homes. And I'm not saying that that other foster parents aren't awesome, because anybody who does this work is amazing. It's not an easy task, and it wasn't something that I was sure I was ready to do. Um, So I'm not saying that, I'm not bashing on non tribal foster parents because, man, anybody that is in the trenches to help our children, I'm all about it. What I am saying is that we're delusional when we talk about things that are happening at the border right now and children are being separated from their families and their parents and they may may never go home and they may never be reunited. Adoption is a billion-dollar industry in this country. Billions. The adoption lawyers of America fight us every chance they get in court to keep our kids. Because that white privilege of those foster parents, what do you mean I can't keep them? But they're mine. Right No. those children in foster care have an inherent right to the citizenry of the nation of their birth. Amen. The nation of their birth. And, and when they are taken away from us and our communities, often what happens is that non-tribal folks who adopt them or want to keep them, don't ever reconnect them. And then what happens? Exactly what happens to them. That pain, that addiction, that stuff that they're trying to cover up through that loss of what they would have had, Killed, and yet we don't talk about that. It almost killed me. It did kill my mother. My mother died of a broken heart. And I testified before the Department of Justice about that. That these policies killed my mother, and that I held them responsible, and I held the Bureau of Indian Affairs responsible. Because they have since admitted that they secretly funded the Catholic Charity Projects here in Washington. They didn't admit it at the time, but they have admitted it since. They funded those places. Right? And so, lots lots of stuff. Like, lots of hard stuff. Lots of stuff that's still happening in our communities. And I think it comes back to when you want to talk about, well, I want to be an ally, right? Sometimes that's just walking behind us and supporting us while we do this work. Sometimes it isn't for you as an ally to take a seat at the table and try to voice your opinion. Sometimes it's you walking alongside us and supporting us, correcting people who talk about those Indians, correcting people who talk about well, they have every right to keep that Indian child, right? Understanding the true nature of what's happening to our children and in our communities is so important. And it doesn't happen a lot. I mean, people want, you know, people say that they want to do that, but they don't want to sit with the hard conversation of institutional racism. They don't want to sit in the hard conversation of how we've been complicit. They don't want to sit in the hard conversation of, how do you harness your privilege? They don't want to sit in that. Everybody just wants to get along. Can't we all just get along? We want the truth first, just like these folks, just like this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they realized I mean, the beautiful thing, by walking with indigenous people, they realized that they were wrong. Like, man, we've got to come into these communities in their way, not in our way we got to sit with them, we've got to hear their stories. And then they got what they needed, but not until they came in that way, you know? And so I have some beautiful, one of the things that Tracy Rector, Longhouse Media does, um, every time that we do a showing, if we're a community partner in it, um, we make up what's called a on Indigenous Land posters. And I have some really beautiful posters in the back that are free um, for you to take with you um, that talk about Swamish, because we're on Swamish territory. Um, I do have the the National Indian Welfare Association report there. If anybody wants to take one, please feel free to do so. Um, And and I'm open for questions. Like, I know this is a lot, but it's like (laughs) But, but if you have any questions, or you know, I'm, I'm open, and that's what I'm here for, it's why I partner with this film group. I, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, being here and uh, sharing today. Um, I also remember hearing a rumor that there was a similar process, maybe going to be started in Washington State. And I, I was wondering if that is still true and, and if you know anything about that. You know, I've heard that as well. Um, I think that um, I think that there are rumblings of it, and I think that people are talking about it. Um, I don't really I haven't seen any movement on the side of the state to come to a situation like this. This is hard. And what happened in Maine was that the governor um, supported this. Signed off, and I had the Secretary of State right be a part of this mission. And as soon as the findings came out, disavowed it. As soon as they used the word genocide, and as soon as they had the report put together, he stepped away and said, "Oh no, no, I don't. The state doesn't support this." Um, and so it's a tough, it's a tough thing. I think it would be a beautiful thing for us to start, but.
3: In order for that to happen they have to be willing to come to the table yeah. um, do you have any feeling for how um, history books in our public school systems are, are now because i mean i'm thinking back i was I, I went to public school in san francisco in right in the, the, the you know late 50s early 60s and my major takeaway from the history books you know, you kind of mm-hmm. were led to come to the conclusion genocide was never used, but we'll use the word because that's what it was. Right. Genocide was just sort of this byproduct of, of the pioneers, yeah. you know, going out west, and it was kind of too bad. But you know what? Right. Let's not get stuck here. Let's kind of negative. right. Let's move on. Let's move on now. Yeah. Course. Yeah. And um, you know, it took, uh, yeah, it's embarrassing to say. You know, it probably took me seeing uh, Little Big Man with, with Desmond Hoffman before it, it, it occurred to me that oh wow, they might have left some things out. Right. Um, so yourself, how do you how do you see this? <laughs> I'm glad you have a sense of humor. i right, really oh. to do it. Um, so so here's the thing, like so I went to school here in
2: Lacon. Okay? okay. There's also there's always been so my grandmas and my aunties, you know, went to school here. So my aunties and um, had to leave school. There used to be, the old bridge was right down here for some of you locals. Um, And they would have to, and not be late, run home to eat across the way, right, to our reservation, because the Conner School District would not feed them. Okay, that's my aunties and my grandma. My mom was the cook for that. For, to feed our kids. Was Her first job was to cook the kids that came home. I remember. Yeah. So and, so then my generation, so then I went to school here. And I can remember in second grade, we had a teacher here in the School District that would, um, Evil and I, um, there was a counter space. And they had these old ball boxes that were under the counter. That had our like bouncy balls and dodgeballs and all that stuff in it and I was in second grade and she would lock us Indian kids in those ball boxes she would pull the balls out and lock us in and shut the light and lock the door and leave us there and I can remember evil being locked in the one next to me <laughs> trying to comfort me in the dark while I cried in the one next to that young man is dead today. So, now I have two beautiful, amazing, Tulalic tribal members that are going to school here. And the first thing that, that I was met with by an administrator was absolute blatant institutional racism. Blatant. And so, the history piece of it makes me mad because two years ago, the governor signed into law that the time immemorial curriculum would be taught in Washington. You think LaConnor's done that yet? In a school district that's 40% native. Think that's happened? I had a meeting with the superintendent yesterday where I was ambushed by white privilege and white fragility and scolded about my tongue. So, So those things like, yes, accurate history needs to be taught. It's a law in Washington State. It has been for two years and we still don't teach it. So again, like that that misperception that Washington is this wonderful little granola state that does all of these wonderful things, um, when in fact that really isn't happening. And the sad thing is that well, connor has got this great opportunity. I mean, we're so close in community, right? And yet, the summer I moved home, I, I waited tables because I, in my formal life, that's what I did um, down. And I got to listen to the farmers come in and bring their friends and sit on the water and talk about those dirty unions. It's 2019. And the divide in this community is large. And it's still happening. And our kids are still being lost to our families and our communities. In the last year, nine of our Swimish kids Nine are out in care. And where are they? I live in Shelter Bay. I have an extra bedroom. They're out in state care. Some of them are up in Bellingham. Some of them are down in Arlington. One of them was being taxied from Edmonds every day to go to school. Alone. At 12. In a taxi. I was called to take that little boy? No, but my oldest boy sat on the bathroom floor with him at the elementary school this last year and cried while he sat on the floor and said, I don't even know where I live. I don't even know where that is. I just wanna come home to my people. So this isn't a far away, history is something that's continuing today against our families, against our children. And history isn't taught in our
3: schools. It's not a true and accurate history. You know? So how's that for him? <laughs> well, you know, I, I could have hoped for something cheerier, but honestly, right? I, mean, I didn't expect it, but I would have been delighted. It right, to have been yeah. yeah. All
2: right. So, did you get any answer as to why they were not implementing the curriculum yet? I mean, yeah, I was wondering if it was up to the superintendent sort of or the school board or who is it that's yeah. blocking it? Every time that I have brought this up, at whether it be with board members or um, with the superintendent and her administrative staff, um, who don't want to meet with me anymore, by the way, because they don't like my phone, um, I always get that. I know we need to do it, but it's just so complex. It's just so, the complexity of it is just so, like it just can't happen overnight um, is what I am told. So, anyway. And you had, oh. Is
0: this yeah. available to see online? For
2: sure? It is, and in fact there's a free, if you go to Donna.org, there's a, I think it's .org. Does it say on the bottom of the post? It is .org. Yes, .org. Um, think I would know that but um, they're doing a free online screening um, later this month and all the directors are going to be online so like you could actually ask them questions because um, this was really hard for them because they're white and they like the whole you should ask them about this so that whole um, you know they filmed for almost three years two and a half years and they came back to Sandra Whitehawk, who's part of their team, right? To show her a rough cut, and she like, literally laughed in her face and went, what, you've been filming for two years and this is what you brought back to me? And they scrapped it and had to start over. And so so the this team worked really hard and they had to start over from scratch um, and really get to the meat of the matter because they were trying to keep it very, the tone cheery and um not you know trying to stay palatable to folks that struggle with that and um and Sandra said yeah oh no <laughs> yeah. and so they went back to the drawing board but anyway so they're going to be doing a screening if you look at it online and all the directors will be there to be able to answer your questions um but then you can also rent it and um, on the website and you can always, um, there's a space for folks to do a community showing or like if you belong to an organization that you go, wow, I think we should probably talk about this. Um, you can do that. You can request a community partner to come and talk with your group. I'm working with a couple of different organizations about doing restorative um, work within our communities. Um, Warren Beach Conference Center is one of them um, and they've been amazing, but it's been a year and a half process. Like it isn't easy, you know. Um, organizations are very entrenched um, in in that, without even knowing, very entrenched um, in the conversation or in the um, investment of institutional racism. And so I'm working with them, the Woodbury Island Institute has also reached out and we start our first board meetings um, with them in the next couple weeks to start looking at how they heal their surrounding communities tribal communities and some of the things that they've done because they're actually at a place where they recognize that they participated in us so lots of good resources and they also have teachers manuals that you can download for free um, on the Upstander Up Academy and that that link is on the online website as well because they came out with everything to make it possible for teachers to teach this at no cost. So you can rent the film, you can download the teachers manual, um, it has discussion points for different age groups, it has you know projects, I mean it has the whole curriculum available. How many for teachers in our district? <laughs> you know what I you're mean? So funny. <laughs> I know. love you. Um, yeah. I don't really think I'm too, but Right? Yes, yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> I you know, I don't know. I mean the unfortunate thing is um, you know, it's free and available. Um, just kind of like doing your own research um, about the genocide that happened and you know, and people are just kind of loath to do that if they don't have to. And I think our school district has been really entrenched for a long time in this belief about our kids. And it's really tough. It's really tough to get through that and to really fight for our kids. I think the thing that I would leave you with is one One of the things that we talk about is that people are always like, oh, we just love your culture. You know? And and one of the things that I would encourage you to do is, like. Google that shit, right? Google that stuff and learn about your neighbors. Like, where are your neighbors? And and learn about who do I live next to? Like, what do they do? What are their cultural practices? Have I ever been there? Do I even know what that looks like, right? And and learn that. And then the other piece is, um, I was talking to Becky, I think we were talking about it the other day, and I said, but even as, as you know, White folks, like you all have your own ingenuity. It's just not from here. And I think people have lost touch with that, non indigenous people to this country. And and research that and connect to your ancestors. You know, when she was talking about man, I could And yet, you know, you have ancestors. You have customs and culture and, and connection to the land. You know, we have a deep, deep connection to the land. It has sustained us for, you know, 15,000 years. One when I should have been here, our people. And so we have a deep connection to place. Find out what that is for your family. Teach your children that. Teach them that these are our This is our culture. And this is our. This is what we, our families did, which gives people a better idea of why that culture is so important to us as indigenous people. Anyway, I appreciate you all. Thank you for listening to my. You know. Um, and-